0: So I'd like to talk tonight about working with some of the difficulties we face in our lives and in our practice. <coughs> Earlier this week, I was listening to a lot of stories in my office that were um, <coughs> situations where people were really in difficulty. A woman I'd known for a very long time um, was working in a, she works this, um, in a downtown, town area called the downtown east side where she sees people who have really hard lives every day and she was saying to me, I just can't do it anymore I saw five people already today who didn't have enough to eat and I see people who have homes and I don't have any answers for them and I just can't do this anymore and we talked about how hard it was for her that she couldn't fix it for them And so, as I was thinking about this and feeling a lot of compassion for her, for myself, for the people, I realized that that's really what we're here for, is to be able to live in this world fully, to be able to be here however it is, and to learn how to live with the difficult world that's around us to be able to experience freedom in our lives no matter what's happening. Because that's what this practice is about, that ability to find freedom. So how do we practice with these difficulties that we face without falling into the natural tendency to avoid them or to become overwhelmed by them? The Buddha talked about five hindrances, he called them, five difficult states that we face in our practice and in our lives. Desire, aversion, and aversion includes fear and anger and boredom and judgment. And then sloth or sleepiness and restlessness and doubt. When we're not aware of these states, they really cloud our ability to see clearly. And we need to see clearly to act wisely in the world. Some of you who've been practicing for a long time may have heard a lot of hindrance talks. And so you might be aware right now of which hindrance you're experiencing. It might be boredom or comparing mind or aversion of some sort. And for those of you who aren't familiar with the hindrances, also to be aware of what state is present for you right now. It might be restlessness or sleepiness. Some quality that catches and that makes it hard to be with your experience in the moment. They're really deeply ingrained and they're so conditioned in our minds that we think that they're who we are. We believe that they're part of us. We forget that they're just mind states. And we think that in order to be free, we have to get rid of them. But they're not the enemy. On the Buddha's night of enlightenment, when he was being assailed by all the forces of Mara, shooting arrows at him of all these different things, trying to make him afraid and angry and lustful and sleepy, all these things. As the arrows came near him, they turned into flowers. And so we can learn to do that too, to see these difficulties as part of the path, as a gift to show us the doorway to freedom. They can become part of the journey. They can show us where we're stuck. And if we look at them with mindfulness, and gentleness, and kindness, we can find that what seemed terrifying, or horrible, or boring, or simply nothingness, can actually become a source of wisdom, can help us reconnect with our true nature. Mindfulness is simply a mirror. It simply shows us exactly how things are. when we're wanting something different for dinner, mindfulness just shows us wanting, wanting. It doesn't add, why don't they have this and why don't they have that and the cook should have got this in or got that in. It simply shows the bare experience without adding all the comments and the judgments. One of the things about mindfulness is that it doesn't judge. One of the hardest times that we give ourselves is our own disapproval. And when we buy into disapproval, that becomes our way. When we buy into harshness, then we're practicing harshness. And the more we do it, the stronger that state becomes. But when we shine the light of mindfulness on it, it simply reveals it. And with kindness, we can start to loosen that pattern because mindfulness doesn't compare or judge. It simply shows us what's true. So how do we work with these difficulties that you've been facing all day? As you start to watch the breath, you realize it's not so easy. Your mind comes in, your body comes in, there's comments, all these things, the sleepiness, restlessness, doubt, How do we work with it? The first thing we do is we shift the energy away from trying to get rid of it to the power of recognition. And just that simple thing releases the energy. We invite these difficult states in rather than contracting around them and trying to push them away. And we make room for them with mindfulness and with kindness. This is from Rumi. It's the guest house. And many of you have heard it before. But just allow your eyes to close and just really listen to it. This being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival. A joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture. Still, treat each guest honorably. They may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice, meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes, because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. It's hard to be contracted when we're welcoming difficult states. And there's something about being open and receiving them that frees the energy. When we're contracted, the energy gets blocked. So we just notice what's happening. And there's a mnemonic that I like that I find really helpful, and it's called RAIN. And the R is for recognize. What's happening? We name it. What is it that's occurring right now? The A is acceptance. We notice, are we accepting or resisting what's going on? Can we approach it with openness? rather than resistance. Can we allow it to be the way it is? The I is interest, investigation, being curious about what's happening in the body, and the mind, and the heart when these states take over. Can we see them as just energy rather than getting carried away by them or judging them? And the I is not identifying with them, realizing that they're not personal. It's not my anger or my fear. It's just an energy state passing through. So a very simple, not too charged example. Um, Some years ago, um, I really wanted to go to a, um, a retreat, and it was on the East Coast, And it was a teacher that I loved dearly and I'd been planning to go for a long time. And um, I got to the airport in time and I checked that the flight was on time. And when I got there, they told me that not only had the flight been delayed, it was cancelled, but that I could get a flight later that day and go via Toronto and spend the night in Toronto and they would put me up in a hotel and that I would get there um, a day or so later. And... um, I immediately fell into a snit. Um, And the recognition was snit. And the A was that I was not accepting the situation at all. (laughs) Um, And when I investigated it, there was a two-year-old mind. I wanted my retreat. I didn't want to spend the night in Toronto. It wasn't acceptable to me at all. But I also recognized that I wasn't in any fit state in the two-year-old mind to talk reasonably to anybody. And so I went to the phone, and I called my sister, who knows me very well, and I said, Francis, I'm having a snit. Mm -hmm. And so I had a snit on the phone, which was a very safe place to have it. And then I was able to, naming the energy and owning it, then to be clear and to go back and to negotiate in a more reasonable manner and um, get another airline and arrive on the East Coast at two in the morning. But it was that simple recognizing, this is what's going on, and I'm stuck. It wasn't that I had to accept the situation, it was just the, recog- the acceptance was noticing that I wasn't accepting it. This is what's going on. So that's, that's really how, how it works. So I'd like to talk about each of these hindrances a little bit um, in more detail and explain how we work with them. The first one is desire, and that's that basic animal drive to move towards things pleasant, that every animal, even the most primitive ones, have. If something's pleasant, is it something I can eat? Or is it something I can mate with? If it's unpleasant, maybe it will eat me. It's very basic, and it's needed for survival. The problem is that, and there's nothing wrong with the sense of pleasant. The problem is that we cling to it and we want it to be continuous. We get caught in, I want mind. I want more. And if only. We want the bell to ring. Maybe we want a better zafu or a plumper cushion or a different thing for dinner. We get caught in looking for the next condition that will make us happy. And then we keep looking outside for a sense of completion. If only this would happen, then I would be okay. Some desires are very healthy. To want to be free. (coughs) To want our friends to be at peace. To want the world to be at peace. It's when we get attached to them that it causes suffering. When we can't bear it if those things happen. When we want it so much that we're stuck to it. One of the difficulties for us is that we live in industrialized growth society, which depends on us wanting. It needs us to want in order to keep growing. And so it depends on us feeling inadequate unless we buy this. And you all know this because you're surrounded by the consumer society. We're told that we'll be happy if we become that, or when we have that. And it's so indoctrinated that it's really hard to get free of it. And it's not about having shame or feeling bad for wanting. It's just recognizing the energy of wanting. It's not who we are. If we get c- caught in thinking, I'm a greedy person, it's painful. It's just seeing this is the energy of greed. It's not bad. That's just what it is. I was on a retreat um, some time ago um, with a teacher called Upandita. And I'd been practicing for some days, and finally I got quite concentrated. And it was just before lunchtime, and in these retreats they only serve lunch, there's no evening meal. And so lunch is the big meal of the day. Mm -hmm. And it was just before lunchtime, and I fell into this really peaceful, very concentrated state. And it was just wonderful, and I thought, ah, finally, I've made it. And then the, dinner, the lunch bell went. And all of a sudden, I realized I preferred food to enlightenment. <laughs> <laughs> and it was very humiliating. <laughs> um, and so f- I saw this wanting. I wanted the state, I wanted to hold on to this beautiful state, but I also wanted food. And there was judgment about that. There was aversion to the wanting. And so I recognized that that was going on. And then I just allowed the wanting to get as big as it could get. And it it became like this huge mouth that was going, wah! You know, like some giant baby. (laughs) Want, I want. And when that happened, gradually it got bigger and bigger, and some humor arose, and then it dissolved. And I just sat quite peacefully for some time. And so it was that moment of allowing it to just get as big as it was going to get, that enabled it like a wave to get bigger and bigger and then to pass. And that's how it is with all these energies. They're just energies. And then, of course, um, pride arose at having allowed the wanting, and that was the next hindrance that I had to watch. The trouble in our society is that we don't learn to tolerate the wanting mind because it gets so conditioned. So the moment we start to want something, before we know what we're doing, we've reached out and we've grabbed hold of it, whatever it is, whether it's an object or a fantasy that's entertaining us in, um, in our sittings, it's really easy to keep moving towards it. What can help is to separate the state of wanting from the actual object. Often the two get confused. So that the flowers over there can be beautiful and the sculpture is beautiful and it's the wanting that's the problem, not the objects. And to separate the two is very helpful. Then we can just be with the energy and allow it and not get caught. The more we keep paying attention to the object, the more caught we become. If we can pay attention to the wanting, then we get to see that it arises and it passes, and we don't get stuck in the story. I love to tell a story um, about my son when he was quite small. We were driving home um, from preschool, and. Um, He suddenly announced that he was really thirsty and I had to stop and buy him a pop. And it was rush hour down one of the busiest streets in Vancouver where there was no parking. And I had a fit of aversion. I didn't want to stop and get a pop. And so I responded to him from that place of aversion. But then I saw that it wasn't working. And so I said to him, how big is your wanting? Mm -hmm. It's huge, just as big as a bus. I said, wow, what's it like? It's so bad. My tongue is stuck to the roof of my mouth. If you don't stop, I'm going to die of thirst. Oh, that's terrible. And we talked about how his wanting was, and he went on and on about how big it was and how awful it was. And then um, there's a store where they have these plastic revolving chickens <laughs> that go around and around. And he saw these, and he got really into watching the chickens. And um, then we drove on some more, and you know, I said, well, how big's your wanting now? Oh, Well, it's about as big as the car. And then we continued, and finally we got home, and he ran inside and started playing with Lego, and he never even stopped for a drink. And what I saw from that was my response to his wanting with aversion was making it worse for both him and for me. When I could allow it, he got to allow it too. And he got to see that it passed. And when he just paid attention to the wanting, and stop paying attention to the drink, (laughs) the object, he wasn't as stuck to it, and neither was I. And so it's that ability to simply pay attention to the wanting itself that helps us to become free of it. So what you can do is the next time wanting arises for you, perhaps you're wanting the bell to ring in your sitting. Just notice, and maybe name it softly, wanting, wanting. That's the recognition. Then become aware of how you're reacting to it. Maybe you're pushing it away. Then notice what does it feel like in the body. Is the body tight, or is it open, or how is it? Notice what happens to the wanting as you pay attention to it. Does it get bigger, or does it dissolve? And see what happens. Sometimes it will dissolve, and if it does, keep staying with it and noticing the relief when the wanting's dissolved. Sometimes when the bell rings, you'll notice that sense of relief. And sometimes you'll be able to sit there for another five minutes or so, think, wow, I feel really peaceful now. And what happened was that wanting went away. The relief from the wanting (laughs) enabled you to feel peaceful. It didn't really have anything to do with the bell. Some of the antidotes to um, desire are generosity. Practicing generosity helps loosen that sense of holding on to me and mine. It's helpful. Acknowledging that it's impermanent that the state of wanting arises and it dissolves and then moderation can we just have a little bit rather than all or nothing of whatever it is the other side of wanting wanting the pleasant to last is when things are unpleasant and we want them to go away and that's aversion that's resistance to the way things are And it can take the form of anger, or judgment, or fear, or boredom. It's any kind of response where we want things to be different. And like wanting, it's just an energy. And when we can mindfully turn our attention away from the object, say that we're angry with, and towards what's happening in our body, it enables the energy to be freed, and it loosens the contraction. So what we do is we bring our attention to the sensations that are going on in our body, the tightness, the heat, the whatever it is, and it helps lessen our preoccupation with the storyline. It helps bring us out of that place where we might go around in circles, and we can see more clearly how to act. There's a nice analogy of if, um, if your house is on fire, the most useful thing to do is to start putting out the fia- fire before you go looking for whoever it was that started the fire. And it's in the same way, we turn our attention towards what's happening in here and away from the object that's, for example, um, led to the anger. If we use anger as an example of, an, of aversion, it's a signal, usually mindful reveals what the signal is saying. It's a signal that someone is suffering. Often there's hurt or fear underneath. It tells us that something in the world, or in us, needs attention, needs to be addressed. We're not doing this practice to become placid and to not act, towards injustice. What we're practicing for is to be able to manage our anger skillfully so that we can use the energy to act wisely. There are times when no is required of us, even if it's unpleasant. So we practice experiencing the anger, seeing if we can be with it without inhibiting it or judging it or pushing it away. And it's a relief when we can let it pass through in this way. We can think of it in the same way as the wanting. It's just waves of energy. Sometimes, if our anger has been suppressed, when we start to get in touch with it, it can seem overwhelming. All the words that we wished we'd said and never did. Or there might be violent images. Sometimes people have images of volcanoes erupting, um, the anger can be really enormous inside us. There's a lot of things in the world that there are reason to be angry about. And so sometimes it can help to have the sense of our bodies not ending at our skin, that our anger might be as big as the room, it might be as big as spirit rock, that it doesn't have to be contained just in this body. But we can work gently with our anger, because sometimes if it seems too strong, we might just need to back off, or to just be with sound, or to be with nature, and just give ourselves some space. One of the antidotes to anger is loving-kindness. When we find ourselves really lost, We can practice loving kindness towards ourselves. May I be safe from inner and outer harm. The inner harm being the ways that we judge ourselves, our own angry forces. And we can use mindfulness as a companion so that the anger isn't alone, so that there's a little bit of witnessing that helps us be with this difficult state. One of the difficulties that we face in our practice, particularly with these difficult mind states, is that we judge them. And judging is the most difficult form of aversion. Sometimes in our society we can find that the judging is endless. We all have this internal critic that's constantly commenting on our practice and on other people's practice. And that comparing mind is really deep. And approval is a form of comparing. A lot of us as women really get caught into seeking approval. And that's just another form of judgment. And it can, it's not ending. It can never be enough. And so it can really help to have compassion for that and to notice when we're judging rather than judging the judging. To just notice, oh, there it goes again to think of it like this machine that's churning out judgments. It's sort of secreting judgments in our mind. And if we know, if we're familiar with our own particular judgments, we can choose to eject that particular tract. We've heard that one before. We can press the button. We don't need to believe them. Often they're not telling the truth. They're just these conditioned states that come from our childhood, from our parents, our teachers, um, our, the society, this constant comparing mind. And again, the antidote is loving kindness. The more we practice kindness towards ourselves, the more that will gradually become our way. The more we judge, the more we'll believe that. Another form of aversion that we meet over and over as we sit and in our lives is fear. Can be the small fears, the fears that our roommate will snore, or that there'll be nothing we like for lunch, or that the person next to us who's breathing heavily will do it for the entire sitting. (laughs) All these little fears. And then there can be the much larger fears, the fears of survival and existence. When we're moving into unknown territory, often when we move closer to the truth, when we step out of the known and into the unknown, fear comes up. There are so many levels that we can meet fear in our practice. It can take us to that edge. Often underlying anger and anxiety and restlessness and sleepiness, there's actually fear. It's sometimes fear of what might happen. And there are so many different levels of this that it's really helpful to be mindful when those states arise and just to notice what's going on. It can be something really small, like your back is starting to hurt, and fear whispers, It's going to last all sitting. And then fear says, it's getting worse. And then fear says, you're going to damage yourself permanently. (laughs) And then fear says, you won't be able to get a chiropractor appointment for at least a week. And on and on. And the more you get caught in it and the more you believe it, the bigger fear gets. And somehow, when you run away from fear, it also gets bigger. And it's only by turning around and looking at fear in the face and saying, I see you, fear, that it starts to come down and it starts to dissolve a little. All the thing that we've created begins to fall. Um, One of my patients, um, her little daughter, fell off the change table when she was examining her and banged her head and so she rushed into hospital, and she was sitting there in emergency. And she was thinking, oh my God, what if she's brain damaged? And then she had this vision of herself feeding her child with a spoon, and child not being able to walk, and how she'd, she'd have to quit her job to look after her. And then her husband would leave her because it was her fault that she'd done this. And, and um, this was all in less than five minutes. And then the doctor came and examined her child and said, well, she's fine, you can go home. And she said, what do you mean she's fine? she believed this whole story that she'd created. And so often fear will do that. We just create this, this image of what might happen. One of the antidotes to fear is loving kindness and paying kind attention to it. I'm just making a soft note, fear. Just staying with it very gently. It doesn't mean that we jump in too deep. If we do that, we can exacerbate fear. If we think, okay, I'm going to face this and deal with it. Sometimes that's not useful. We can overwhelm ourselves if we push too hard. And this kind of practice isn't an archaeological dig. We can allow things to show themselves in their own time. We just deal with what's here in the moment. And if we find a small enough dose, it's possible to work with it. And then we can integrate it, and we can see that the fear is workable a little bit at a time, and trust builds. It isn't that the fear has to go, it's that we learn to be able to be fearless in our approach to it. (coughs) Um, About a year ago, there was a woman on one of my retreats in Canada, and um, about the second day of the retreat, I happened to go into the lobby, and there she was with her bags all packed, just about to call for a taxi. This was about an eight-day retreat. And I said, Oh, what's happening? And she said, I've got so much fear, I have to go. And so we talked about it, And we talked about some of the ways of being with the fear and just being kind and gentle with the fear and what her fear was of. And so she was able to be with it. And at the end of the retreat, she came up to me and she said, you know, I realized that if I'd have left, the fear would have come with me. But by staying, I got to see that it was workable. And I know fear will come back but I'm not going to be so afraid of it again. And it was really helpful for her just to see that it was workable. Another of these states of aversion is boredom. And boredom is one of the most difficult things for me on retreats. I like some kind of intensity. You know, Either it has to be joy happening, or I can handle really... Difficult emotions, but boring is really hard. And so boredom is when we want a more interesting moment. And our society doesn't help us deal with boredom very much, because we fill in all all our spaces so that we don't get to feel bored. There isn't much time that's just free. And so when we come on retreat, boredom can arise. We've been watching the breath for a little while. It gets boring. Can we stay with that energy and just be with it? And what we see is it is just another energy state. And often, if we can stay with it, there's a depth of practice that will come. There's some deeper level that we're just about to slip into, some creative energy that can come if we can stay with boredom. We make it the object of our attention. Just pay very careful attention to the boredom. What's it like? What's the energy like in the body? How is it? How does it change? So we bring in curiosity and interest. So those are the states of aversion, or some of them. And the next hindrance that almost everyone has experienced today is sleepiness, sloth or torpor. Apparently sloths sleep. 20 hours a day as do lions. Lionesses don't. <laughs> but <laughs> they have responsibilities. <laughs> but um, sleepiness is a problem on retreat. And as women, we often have too many things to do. Many of us multitask. And so we come here and we stop and our bodies say, thank God she stopped. She's not doing anymore. It must be nap time. <laughs> and so of course we start to sleep feel sleepy. And so mostly the first day of a retreat it's just a case of knowing that this is the energy that's here and as much as possible not judging it. If we can treat it with kindness rather than resistance it tends to pass more easily. If we resist it then we're using up even more energy and we fall even more into sleepiness. And so it's what's skillful is to acknowledge, ah, it's sleepiness here. This is how it is. One of the analogies for sleepiness um, is there's like a, a pond covered with algae or slime, so it's impossible to see, see clearly. And another analogy is it's like being in prison, and you have a key, but you just can't <coughs> get it together to get up and let yourself out. Um, It's just that kind of energy that drags you down where you feel really caught. What can help is to bring in the quality of interest. So you recognize it, you notice if you're resisting or accepting it, and then you bring in a quality of interest and investigation. You can open your eyes. And sometimes it's it's not useful to use the breath when you're sleepy because the breath is very calming. And as you get calmer and you get more concentrated, you can <laughs> doze off again. What you want to do is open the attention wider. So instead of paying attention to the breath, you might pay attention to sound or to the, your hands in your lap or to your feet or just touch points in the body. Um, bringing, allowing light to come in. And then if in your walking meditation, walking more quickly. All ways that bring in energy are helpful with sleepiness. Sometimes, as I said before, there can be a difficult emotion underneath sleepiness. So if you've been on retreat several days, those of you who've practiced for a while, and you know you've had enough rest, and you think, I shouldn't really be sleepy. It can be helpful to say to yourself, if I wasn't experiencing sleepiness right now, what would I be feeling? And sometimes that's useful, just to see what's underneath it. Not that you're having to find an answer, but just see what comes up, what your wisdom has to show you. The other end of the energy spectrum is restlessness. And restlessness is when the when the bowl of water is all ruffled and choppy and disturbed, and it's said to be like slavery where your mind is your master and it's constantly dragging you all over the place and it's that agitated state of body or mind worrying is restlessness. sometimes we feel like we can't stand it another moment. You know sometimes people say, "I feel like I've just got." The last retreat I was on, this one young woman said, she said, I feel like i just got to stand up and scream. And she had these fantasies of doing this. She felt so restless. Want to run out of the hall. It's that kind of energy in the body. And again, we live in a culture that stimulates it. There's so many sensory stimuli that we can easily get overloaded. And the body can have this kind of hypervigilance and state of restlessness just because there's so much out there um, that we're bombarded with. But it is just another energy state, and it helps to just see it as that. Again, to come back into the body. What's the experience like in the body? There's vibration, there's heat, there's intensity. And the same as with, with anger and aversion, see if you can make a little more space rather than having to contain it in your body. I'm so restless the energy fills the whole room. Make some space, and then it's not. It, the sensations are not so intense. See what happens as you pay attention to it. Does it get more or does it get less? Sometimes it can help, oh, um, in the, the Buddha's teachings, it's said to associate with calm pe- people. So it can help occasionally to open your eyes and just be aware of the stillness around you. It's not useful to open your eyes with comparing mind. <laughs> say, oh God, they're all so still and I'm so restless. But more just to allow that sense of calm, because you don't know what's going on in other people's minds. But just to allow the sense of calm in the room to just um, help that energy come to more stillness. It can also help with restlessness To really pay attention to the breath. Sometimes people find even counting breaths can help. You count from 1 to 10 with the in-breath. And that really just helps bring some calm. Or to do slow walking. With sleepiness, fast walking helps. But strangely enough, when you're agitated, bringing in that sense of calmness can be really helpful. And the final one of the hindrances is doubt. That's when your water is all stirred up and muddy and you can't see clearly. It's we doubt ourselves, we doubt the practice, we doubt the teachings, we doubt the teacher, and we get, conf- get filled with indecision. We just don't like what's happening. And sometimes there's fear underneath. <coughs> there might be fear of making a mistake, fear of failing, fear of not getting it right. And if you believe in it, it's just this endless conjecture. It goes around and around, and it's very painful. Often the cause of it is the lack of two things, a lack of faith in ourselves, in in what we're doing, and a lack of that quality of investigation. And then if you add to that comparing mind, you really get caught in doubt. What can help is to have an attitude if it's okay to not get it right, it's okay to make mistakes. I love, um, I can't remember right now who said it, but it's this, what is the secret of life? Good judgment. How do you develop that? Through experience. How do you develop that? Through bad judgment. So it's being able to allow our mistakes and not getting caught in doubt because we can't get it right or things are not working for us. Investigation is really helpful. What can I be clear about in this moment? This breath, this step, these sensations in the body, those there are no doubt about. I know that these sensations are what my experience is right now. So then there's a moment without doubt and that can bring us out of it, and we can then be aware, oh, I was really caught in doubt. So we make it the object of our attention. Sometimes it can be helpful just to note confusion. I'm just stuck in confusion. That's what's going on right now. With all the hindrances, what happens is that we begin to see that they come and go. One is replaced by another, just like the weather. Sometimes the weather is crummy for a while, but it's always changing, even if it stays crummy for quite a long time. Even in Vancouver, the rain stops. You know, in Vancouver, people say, it, we don't tan here, we rust. <laughs> but the weather still changes, and the hindrances change. Sometimes. They arise in all sorts of different combinations, and we call that a multiple hindrance attack. (coughs) We get anxious, and then we judge it, and then we doubt ourselves, and then we judge ourselves again, and it goes on and on, and we can get really caught. But as our practice deepens, they become more workable. We start to see that just by paying attention to them, Just by loosening the resistance, they start to dissolve. And we also see that they don't arise full-blown. We may not notice them till they're full-blown, but they didn't start that way. They start as a single negative mind moment. There was the pain in the knee that became the visit to the chiropractor. Just one single bare experience. And the sooner we catch the train of thought, the easier it is to work with. And so it helps to recognize, to ask, what's going on right now? Where am I stuck? What is it that's happening? What's the filter that I'm looking through that is causing me to get caught? And then, how am I relating to it? Am I resisting or accepting? When we're resisting, it's hard to be present. If there's a moment of openness, change is possible. And then we get curious about it. We see that all the hindrances are just like waves. They can be dull, intense, nothing. They're coming and going, just like waves on the sea, just like the breath. And it's the mindfulness that provides an anchor. It provides this safe place. John Kabat-Zinn has um, um, a wonderful guided meditation called the Lake Meditation, where you have this sense of being a lake, and just as a lake is supported by the earth, so are you supported by the earth. And just as the depth of the lake is at most only just undulating, even when the surface is frothing, so too you can connect with that reservoir of mindfulness and peacefulness at the bottom of your lake. That's always there. And the same with having a sense of spaciousness. Sometimes when we're caught in turmoil, it can help to put our attention on the space outside the turmoil, on the lake beneath the turmoil, just to bring ourselves out of it for a moment. And the more we're able to do that, the more that reinforces the possibility of doing it again. So it's possible then to allow the unfolding all on its own, not to have to control it so much. And sometimes it can help when we're really caught to simply say, I care about my pain. I can't fix it, and I care about it when we're really caught in it and we just stay with it and we begin to see that it passes whatever the hindrance is whether it's fear or anger or wanting or sleepiness it's just waves it's just weather and then the end of rain it's not who we are it's not my anger or my despair or my frustration It's just a mind state arising and passing. John Kabat-Zinn says, How we handle what goes on at the crest of the wave will influence the resolution. Often when we reach our limit, we freeze. It's like an animal that's run and run and run, and it can't escape its pursuer. We tend to freeze if we can't run anymore. And sometimes what we most need to do is actually to keep moving. It's like if you're whitewater kayaking. Um, when you're in white water, the last thing to do is to go, ah, with your paddles like that. You keep paddling. And so even when things are really difficult, you very gently just keep staying being mindful, even if it's just noticing the fear or the anger. I was on one retreat where I had a lot of fear, years ago, and I couldn't be in the hall; it was so intense. And so I just went outside and I started running, and I just kept saying to myself, I'm really scared and I'm running away, I'm running away, I'm running away. And it was that being with it that allowed the fear to pass through. So we just keep practicing, we keep doing the technique, even when it's really hard. But we do it with gentleness, not forcing. We know when it's time to pull over into an eddy and just take a break for a while, maybe to go take a walk, or to have a bath, or to just sit with a cup of tea if things are really difficult. So seeing what's happening, being able to be aware of these states, doesn't necessarily make them go away. And if we find that we're paying attention with an agenda that they should go away, okay, I've been very mindful of this pain in my leg for a long time now. How come it hasn't gone? You know, I've really been paying attention to this fear. I've been very mindfulness, mindful of it. It's still here. Then there's a subtle aversion or a subtle wanting. Sometimes it's not so subtle. But there's a, there's a hook where you're caught. And so then it can help to just note, oh, agenda, oh, wanting it to go. And that becomes the object of awareness, the wanting or the aversion. So we just see whatever it is that's predominant. And when we can see clearly, it enables it gradually to um, wear itself out. It's like the charge gradually begins to pass through. So we honor and feel these wounds and pain that are often underneath the anger, the aversion, the fear, and the wanting. And in honoring them and in allowing them, they gradually get to heal. And we begin to be able to be with deeper levels of awareness in our practice. But it takes time. And it's important to honor each of our own unfolding. Sometimes the anger and the fear can seem too big. And we just need to acknowledge, I can't be with this right now. It's too much. What's true is that it's unbearable. And that's what's asking for attention. We're not trying to live up to some ideal that we should be able to work with it. So we find there are times in our practice when we need to make space. And there are times when we need to focus in. And we begin to trust in our own basic wisdom to see what it is that we need. And to know which will be the skillful thing to do. And it will change because conditions are changing. (coughs) Sometimes one thing will work and sometimes another will. And we begin to trust our own sense of awareness that we'll know what to do. That we can give full permission for things to be the way they are, however that is. So as we practice, these hindrances will keep on occurring. They'll happen over and over again in our lives and in our practice. But we begin to get to know them more intimately, and they become like friends we start to know our particular version. And so we get less troubled by them, and they have less charge. And it can really help to have some humor about them. And this is um, a lovely story about a monk called Geshe Ben. And he specialized in catching his own wanting. And um, one evening, he was invited over to have a meal with his patrons. And after the meal, they'd all gone out of the room. And there was a big sack of flour in the room. And before he knew what he was doing, he'd put his cup in, and he was helping himself and putting it into his bag to take some home for the journey. And as he caught himself doing it, he exclaimed, Ben, what are you doing? And then he yelled, stop, thief, stop, thief. And of course, everybody came running into the room. And he said, I caught the thief red-handed. So he was with humor owning his own wanting. And the story goes that um, a week later he was at the same patron's house and they were serving many other monks and uh, many delicious foods, and including yogurt, which was his favorite. And as the bowl of yogurt passed down the line, he started getting more and more anxious and he realized that he really liked the people who didn't take any, and he really hated the people who did. And then he caught himself doing it. And when the yogurt got to him, he said, no, no, no yogurt for this yogurt addict. (laughs) And so he really, with humor, owned his wanting. And that's what helps, is welcoming our guests in with humor, treating each guest honorably and with kindness. And in that way, we come to live with them with more ease. So may you treat your guests honorably, and may they pass through with ease. And let's sit for a moment. So thank you for your attention, and see if you can be aware of what hindrances arise this evening, and of whether you're resisting or accepting, not judging that, but just to see, being curious about them, and noticing when you're identified with them. It's a really useful thing to do when you notice you get caught. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.